to do Romans chapter 12. Go there in your Bibles. We've been looking at the um, letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. And we are, we've come to the place that is often known as the, 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 the practical section of Romans, where the first 11 chapters are the chapters of, of doctrine and theology. And, and I mean, in Paul, I mean, he ends that section strong, right, with God's sovereignty and election and uh, the future of Israel. And then you move into 12, and people go, oh, it's just good. It's a breath of fresh air. Now, you, now we're into the practical stuff, you know, be, be gone with the theology. And I would say, in some ways, okay, that's, that's fine. What we're really talking about, though, is a different kind of theology. You've got, you've got the theology of what it is that God has done through his son Christ. And now what we're talking about is a theology of, okay, what do we do in light of what it is that God has done. And so, Paul is, is going to be talking to us about, okay, how do we respond to, namely, he begins, to the mercy of God. And this mercy of God has been everything he's been writing about from the very beginning. The, the, the um, undeserved kindness that God has poured out to us. And if you're a believer this morning, you've, you've tasted that mercy. you You've come to know what it is that God is merciful to you. And because of that, Paul is going to say, there has been a radical change in your life. And his encouragement to us is, is that this radical change that's taken place, this new heart we have, this new affections we have, this, this um, um, coming of, of God's Spirit to indwell us, he wants to see that in our lives come to the surface so that we begin to live who we are. I'll illustrate it like this. In 1997, my life changed radically. And that was the year, I remember it was, it was a J July 17th, and it was the year and the day that my oldest daughter was born, Maggie. And I remember, so Leslie went through the, the pregnancy and the nine months of pregnancy, and I already had two years to kind of adjust to the being married thing. I've transformed from being a single guy to a married guy. Um, but there we are, and, Kat, and Maggie is born. And it was, um, it was one of the most life-changing events because one of the things that I didn't realize was going to happen, but not only was, was Maggie born into the world, I mean, that was a big deal. You know what else happened? A father was born. And a, and a mother was born. That all of a sudden, I am now what I never was before, and I am what I will always be from now on. This radical change took place. And I remember, man, she was born, and she's so little and, and helpless, and, you know, her head, you have to hold her head when you hold her. You know, I didn't know this, and you know, wobble all around on top of her shoulders, and and we got ready, I remember the day we were going to leave the hospital. And um, so they're in a roll, so, you know, they roll, they roll Leslie out, and she's holding Maggie, and they're rolling her out in a wheelchair, and I'm going to, you know, pick them up so they get her through the door, and I'm there. And I'm, I have brought the car around, um, and I've got the car seat in there. Um, of course, they inspect that. But anyways, the car seat's in there, and then the whole thing of, if you've never put a child in a car seat before, the first time you do it, um, that, that is hard. Let me just say, 
it's hard. And Maggie, let me know every step of the way how hard that, that this thing was. But I remember, so we're standing there, and there's the car, and then there's Les, and there's Maggie, and I'm thinking, okay, what, um, what now? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm wait, I don't know what I was waiting for. I don't know if I was waiting for like some magistrate or official to come, you know, and say, okay, the, officially this child is yours, you know, and then, you know, present me with the rules and the, you know, the, this is all the stuff you have to do now as a father. And I mean, it is, it is actually shocking that they just let you leave the hospital with these little people. <laughs> I mean, they can't do anything for them. Their entire survival is dependent upon you. And I just didn't realize how radical of a change that was going to be in my life. And in some ways, what it is, is this process. So I don't know who they are. It's the doctors, the nurses, the, the world, you know, God. I, I don't know. But, you know, somebody's saying, you know, it's as though they're saying, Listen, I'm, I'm going to appeal to you. You're going to know what to do. I'm appealing to you. Based upon this miracle that has come into your life and utterly transformed you, I appeal to you on that basis, go and father. And so you do. You go and you, you figure that thing out. And then all your other children benefit from all the things you learned the hard way. You know, but it, it's, it's, it's amazing. I... I was different. My life was ruined with regard to my life before. And yet, I wouldn't go backwards for all the money in the world. And in some way, that's what Paul's doing. He's going to command us. Really, he's going to appeal to us. Say, you've been so radically altered at the core of your being. Now, based on that, based on the mercies of God, everything I've written in the first 11 chapters... Now, become who you are. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Maybe some of the most familiar verses in all of the New Testament. And I can tell you, certainly some of the most uh, densely packed, helpful instruction for living this Christian life. So, if you would, I'm in Romans 12. I'm going to read the first two verses. Some of you are thinking, hey, that's great. Only two verses. I bet we'll get out of here early. Mm, probably not, but, it, but, but good. I like hope, all right? Hope. All right. Here we go. Uh, 12.1. I appeal, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, just stop right there. I just want to show you something real quick. So, where he says mercies of God, if you went up to 1132, uh, you see at the end of that section, you know, you're thinking, oh man, I hope I never have to be in Romans 11 again. J just for one moment here, all right? R Romans 1132, where he says uh, that God's assigned all or consigned all to disobedience so that he may show mercy on all. In some ways, what you realize is, from Romans 1, verse 1, Paul has been leading to the moment where we can all see that everything that God has been doing, he has been doing to display the beauty of his mercy. 
And in some ways, what Paul could do is you expect him to go straight into 12.1. So I appeal to you based on the mercies of God, all that God has done. And, and yet there's this three, four verses in between that's, that's worship, that's praise. And it's this good instruction. Doctrine, the, the truth of who, who God is. Always should end in. I mean, so, so the truth of who God is should always lead us to praise Him, should always lead us to worship, or, or we've done it wrong, but leading us to worship. And it is from, it is from worship, a, a life of worship, not just a, an hour on Sunday morning, but I'm talking about a life of worship as we see more clearly who God is. Then that's what we live out of. That's how we live. You know, we don't go, okay, Romans 1, 1, oh, okay, Paul wrote this, great, let's go to chapter 3, that's the good stuff, that's where we got saved, now let's get to chapter 12. That's kind of how we live our life, that's kind of how we do our theology. And Paul says, no, no, get, get clear. Let the weight of who God is and the, and the glory and beauty of the mercy that he's poured out, let that bring to your heart and mind praise. And then, and then that's what you live out of. That's how you know how to walk. So this is what he says. Okay, so, um, so, so I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the word of the Lord. It's Paul's word to the church in Rome and God's word to us as Bethel today. Four things I want you to see. I'm going to break it up. You're going to have uh, verse 1a and verse 1b. In verse 2a and verse 2b. And the first one, 1a, this is the motivation. To uh, 1b, this is the consecration. Then we're going to look, verse 2a, transformation. And then what is our expectation? Motivation, consecration, transformation, expectation. So if I forget to say those later, you'll know that's, that's what I'm doing, all right? Um, but here's the, here's the appeal. So, so he says he appeals. So, so this is an appeal, the way Paul writes it, is something between um, a, a command and a suggestion. It's an, it's an urging. It's an encouraging. It's, it's, it's not, but Paul's not like pulling rank. He's not, it's not apostolic authority. It's not authority of rank. What, what he's doing is he's appealing. And it's the difference between, so, so there's two words in, in, in the English language. It is a great distinction, um, but, but it helps us to understand. There are two words that are very similar, but, but different. So one of the words is compel. The other word is impel. Compel is what we usually use, and I think we use it to mean both of them. But what compel means, compel is this idea that you are um, 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 exerting a force 
on someone or something to do something. That you're wanting them to yield to what it is that you're saying. You're wanting to direct them, um, point them, um, uh, uh, you know, cause them to go and, and, and do this. You're, you're, you're pushing, if you will. That was what is what compel means. Impel is, is similar. You're wanting for someone to do something, but instead of pushing, you're pulling. Impel is, is to create a desire or an attraction that you're wanting to move yourself towards. This is what Paul's doing. He's impelling them. There's an old story uh, Dale Carnegie tells, um, Dale Carnegie, uh, how to win friends and influence uh, people. And so he tells this story about this guy um, who was a manager at a, at a, at a mill. And um, the big boss, this, this guy named um, Schwab, he comes into the mill to do an inspection and he goes to the manager. He says, hey, listen, you're only doing six, you know, sheets of, of whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing a day. And the guy says, well, well, listen, I've done everything I can. I can't get these people to work. I mean, I have threatened them. I have cussed them out. I've told them if they don't do better, I'm going to fire them. But nothing's really worked. So the guy says, huh, well, that's odd. Um, people, uh, surprise people don't like to be threatened. So w- what he does is, um, it's, a, it's a warehouse, had a big floor. So what he does is he asks for a piece of chalk, uh, takes a piece of chalk, and he says, how many, how many did your day shift do? Sheets. And he said, well, they did six. So he takes a piece of chalk and he writes six real big on the concrete floor. So the night shift comes in. They said, well, what's this number six? I said, well, that's what the, that's what the, uh, the day shift did. Well, at the end of the night shift, here's what they did. They went and scratched out six and wrote a big seven. And the day shift comes in. They see the seven. At the end of the day shift, they erase the seven and they write ten. And in a matter of a week, they had increased their um, productivity 66%. It is, they were impelled to, to produce. This is what Paul's doing. He's impelling us based upon the mercies of God. If we see the mercies of God, if we look at it, we, we, we see it rightly, it, it draws us, it, it, it compels us. We, we want to do this in, the, in these undeserved kindness of God. See, something beautiful, so beautiful and so radical has happened to you if you're a believer. The, the entire course of your eternity has been altered and what Paul wants is that, is that this reality, this, this new eternal destiny that has been forever changed, forever altered, that it would find its way into your life now, that you would begin in this life to taste the eternity to come. This is what he's, what he's saying. This is the motivation, if you will. It's the mercies of God. And then he talks about the consecration. This is the presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. When you presented an offering in the Old Testament, which would have been the context of what Paul was drawing on, when you presented it, you, you went, you, I mean, you, you 
presented the whole thing. I mean, you didn't like take the animal there to be sacrificed and, and then they gave you some of it back. I mean, you, you were taking the whole thing. And what, so Paul says, you know, present your bodies. The, the whole offering of your whole self is what he means. So it could mean, you know, so he's certainly talking about our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears, but he's talking about even more than that. It's, it's all of who we are. It's not just what you've come to give to God. It's you as the giver are presenting yourself. Listen, in, in Paul's quote, this is not some, you know, so, so that you'll get more of God. You already have all of him. His, his spirit, he, he dwells in you. This is an acknowledgement that God has all of you. You're acknowledging it. It is also not in any way, Paul's not saying, this is how, well, this is how you pay God back. Well, you know, so God, you know, he did all this for you. Now, now this is what you do for him. No, you can never pay God back. And it is not, okay, well, this is God's part. And then this is your part. That's not what Paul means either. Everything about your justification, you coming to salvation, this is all of God. Everything about you being transformed into the likeness of Christ, which he already sees you as positionally, this is all of God. Just as your glorification when you are finally, completely, perfectly transformed is all of God. You, you, you have been genuinely sanctified. You, you've been genuinely changed. You are genuinely a new creation. You are not totally what you will be. But you genuinely now are this. Paul is saying, become who you are. You're not doing this so that somehow you get more mercy from God. You have his mercy. His mercies are new every morning. Psalm 23, David writes, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The word follow means hunt you down. His mercy will hunt you down your whole life. You are coming to to give yourself. Here's the problem. We don't want to give ourselves to God. We'd rather write him a check. So I give you, I give you, how much do you need? We're ready to do that. So we said, you know, I give, I give God some time. You know, a Saturday deal? Yeah, I can, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can go give a couple hours. I mean, I'll be late. I'll probably have to leave early. But yeah, I mean, I can totally go do that. Your money, your time, I mean, it's great. I mean, God doesn't need any of that. I mean, the church needs it, so, but God doesn't need any of it. You know what he wants? He wants you. And your money and your time without you, that's not what God wants. He wants you. He sent his son to die for you. We, we just... We love hanging on to our stuff. We, we like want to hold on to our life. And 
enjoy God's blessing. And the truth is, you, you can't do both of those things. You have to let go of your life. Present yourselves, your bodies, to Him as a living sacrifice. So, so it, it's setting up, being set apart in life for God. It's a paradox here. Living, uh, literally, is, is the way it's usually, it's alive. It, you're, you're presenting an alive sacrifice. But the word sacrifice literally means to kill. It's like a living killing is what Paul is saying. And he means to say that. He means to, to shock you. He's already said in Romans chapter 6, you were dead, you've been brought to life. The, the great truth of the Bible, the great upside down, you've got to die to live. Jesus says in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for me will save it. And it's this interesting mental picture. It's the picture of a, of a priest and a sacrifice. And you would bring your sacrifice to the priest. And the priest would go in and slaughter the sacrifice and, and then put it in the fire and have it completely consumed. This is the idea. You know, so this is, you know, you have the, 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 the priest and the victim there. But here, you're, you're, you're both. You're the priest and you're the sacrifice. What Paul is saying, as a priest you come and offer, and what you offer is yourself. This is consecration. This sacrifice, what one writer said, to, to what are we to be consecrated? Not to Christian work, not to charity, but to the will of God to be and do whatever He requires. To, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully, at making yourself fully to the disposal of God. It, it, means, it means so actively and passively, actively willing to obey God in anything He says in any area of life. So passively, be willing to thank God for anything He sends into your life. It would be great. It would be so great. I, I don't know why God hadn't done it. We have technology to do it now. It would be great if discipleship, Christian life, was a course. Like, you know, six weeks. You do six weeks. You do it online. Maybe write a paper at the end. I don't know. And then you're changed. But that's not how it works. God will will move you and, and by His Spirit impel you, sometimes compel you, where He wants you to go, what He wants you to do. Listen, we got to be sensitive to that. We want to listen to that. We want to yield to the Spirit of God as he, as he moves us and nudges us. At the same time, 
There are things that come into our life, and nothing comes into our life that hasn't come through the hands of God, that hasn't come through his mercy and through his grace, and is ultimately for our good. And saying, okay, I'll go wherever you lead me. And I'll receive whatever you send me. And I'll do both with thanksgiving. That's what it means to offer yourself. One, one story goes, uh, will you please tell me in a word, a Christian woman said to a minister, well, what's your idea of consecration? Holding a blank sheet of paper, the pastor replied, it is to sign your name at the bottom of this blank sheet and let God fill it in as he will. That's what it is. You know, some, you, you think about this, and, it's, and it's, it can be a terrifying thing. Whoa. I mean, you're sure. What you're sure of is God is going, you know, yeah, I know, but listen, if I do that, I mean, he's going to end up making me a missionary somewhere. You know? I remember my wife saying, yeah, if I did that, he's going to make me marry a pastor. Sorry. Here's the thing. It's this holy sacrifice. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It's a pleasing sacrifice. Listen to how all of these things come together. So, so holy sacrifice means you, you are set apart for God's nature. Calling something holy is to call it separate, to, to mark it out, to, to be set apart for God's purpose. And listen, part of it is believing, you know what, God is good. Oh, he's, he's so good. And he wants good for you. And the oldest lie told on this spinning planet Earth is that God's going to hold back something. God's, God's worried you're going to be too happy. You know, he's holding it. He's not really good. This is all this, what the serpent is telling our first father and mother. So they go, wow, well, we must be missing something then. I, 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 I didn't even know we were, but I guess we are. And, and so they eat the knowledge of, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and forfeit the good and perfect will of God. So God desires for you what is good. He, he wants to set you apart. Listen, listen, you don't become holy by making a list and checking it twice and, you know, getting all the boxes checked. You don't become holy through a list. You don't become holy by separating yourself, declaring all the things that you don't do. You know how you get holy? You're, ho you're made holy in the presence of God. You don't make yourself holy. You come into the presence of God, and the very presence of God sanctifies you, makes you holy. There's this great scene in the end of Zechariah 14. i got to tell it quick. The end of Zechariah 14, it's the millennial kingdom, and Jesus is reigning on the throne of David, and you see that there are these bells that had hung around the horses' necks, the horses that went into battle against Jesus at the end of Revelation, at the battle of Armageddon. They, they went because they were coming and going to rise up against Jesus, and with one fell swoop, he comes and the sword comes out of his mouth, and they all 
But somebody goes and they pick up all the bells that used to hang around the horses. Next. And at the end of Zechariah 14, where Jesus is seated on the throne, and the whole world in this thousand-year reign is going to come and, and worship him. This is what they'll notice, Zechariah says, is the bells that have been made holy because they're in the presence of the king. You come get into the presence of the king. That's what makes you holy. And he says acceptable and pleasing. The word's pleasing, acceptable. And, and, the, and the reason is, listen, you're called, you're bid, you're impelled to come and please God. And the reason you can is because God's already pleased with you. You're his delight. You're his, you're his treasure. You're his special possession. He bought you with the blood of his very own son. He's crazy about you. And once you're good, because he looks glorious when you wear his good. There's a story, you know, like, like the little boy who's going to play baseball, and he's been working with his dad in the yard, working on his hitting technique. You know, because dads, we just know all that stuff. And, and yet the son will go to the game, gets in the batter's box, three pitches, three strikes. Forgot everything his dad told him. And a good dad. Not a bad dad, but a good dad. She yells at his son. Way to go, good swing. You get it next time. The son knows the father's pleasure. He wasn't up there trying to hit the ball so that he could win it. He wasn't up there trying to hit the ball so that his father would like him. He knows his father loves him. So the next time he gets up there, when he wants to swing it for the fence, he wants to hit that ball so bad. Not because it's going to make his father pleased with him, but because his father's already pleased with him. He wants to please his father. This is what we're talking about. You're not trying to earn anything with God. You have everything. It's, it's stepping into the place of knowing God's pleasure for you as you please the one who's pleased with you. And he says, this is your spiritual your worship. You know, what happens is, that is, is these priestly duties, this, this, this idea of a temple, you know, and your priest that would come to the temple, there's no temple to go to anymore. You're the temple. And it's your spiritual worship. And I know you've experienced this. I mean, you, you experience it, you know, you go, to, you go to a retreat or you, you, know, you hear a great sermon or you go to a seminar and, and, and you come and you think, Man, I, 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 feel, I feel motivated. I, I, I desire to, to give myself over, to, to live for, for him. And, and you come away determined, and you have this depth of, of commitment, this depth of determination. And what happens? It didn't take very long, three or four days, maybe a week, week and a half. You crash and you burn. And the reality is you've, you've come, you've, you've tried to do this out of a depth of determination, and, the, and, and it can only... It can only come from divine resources. You cannot 
do this. But you can cooperate with it. Here's the transformation. Here's how this happens. Motivation, God's mercy. Consecration, offering yourself. Then comes the transformation. Uh, verse 2, do not be conformed. J.B. Phillips' translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's a great translation because conform means literally the, the molded according to a pattern. Don't be molded according to the pattern of this world, which is really the word for age, which doesn't mean the, 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 you know, the world or the cosmos. It means, it means uh, th- this present age, the one that's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the one that is filled with darkness. It is skewed. It is rebellious. It is antagonistic to God and seeks in every way to mold you into its form. In fact, it's, you were born into this age, in sync with this age. One that, that powers and forces like the desire of the flesh, that, that, that desires that originate from inside of you and the, and the desires of your eyes, the ones that originate from the things that you see and lay your eyes on and the, and the pride of life or the pride of your possessions, the, the material things that, that you gather in, in ways, I'm, I'll be secure, I'll be okay if I just get more. We were talking about this as pastors the other day with Brent Kirkley who was leading this uh, pastoral counseling cohort we've been going through. He's talking to us about spiritual warfare and the, and the realities. You have an enemy. And he's the prince of this age. And yet at the same time, you don't have to conform to this world because the cross, Jesus came on the cross. And on the cross, his death and his resurrection, Jesus crashes into this age. He breaks into this age. He comes with his kingdom and inaugurates it in his first disciples. And we are a part of that. We live in this overlapping time of this age and the kingdom to come. And we're part of the kingdom to come. We do not have to be conformed to that. Paul says, resist this. Don't be conformed to that. Because of the mercies of God, believers are now in the world, but we're not of this world. And then he says positively, be transformed. Look at this. Be be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This word transformed, literally you could translate it transfigured. It's a word that we get metamorphosis from. What happens to a caterpillar when it turns into a butterfly or a tadpole when it turns into a bullfrog? You remember butterflies and bullfrogs? You remember that? Any good Baptists in here have the record? It describes this process, metamorphosis, this transformation from one form to another, conformed, squeezed into a mold. This is the transformation from one form to another. It is becoming who you already are. Paul uses it one other time. He says it in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Listen to this. Um, he, he says, uh, he tells us what we're being transformed he, he says, um, and we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So so listen to this. Are are faces unveiled? We're children of the King. We've been saved by Jesus and and the Spirit of God indwells us. And so so now we can see if if we look into his glory and, 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 the, and what the text says. And I don't know how it works, but our proximity to our Savior, Paul describes as peering into the glory of the Lord and being, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. In Romans 8.30, he says, those who are justified are glorified. And in some ways, sanctification, this living the Christian life, it, it, is, it, is, the, it is the pulling, it is the, it is the drawing of our future glorification into our present now, the kingdom to come into my life now. Listen, you're not going to be fully glorified here. You will be then. And Paul's talking about being transformed. It's, it's drawing on this future reality of being made perfect. And experiencing that and tasting it in life now. It's something that happens to you. Be transformed. It's in the, it's in the passive. You don't transform yourself. You are transformed. It's this ongoing process. And it's an imperative. We must do it. We're impelled to do it. But being transformed is something God must do in you. You, I, we, we cooperate with what God's doing. I'll give you one example. It's like being healthy. Listen, you, you can't just make yourself healthy overnight. My wife's married to a guy who, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think, I'm going to get in shape by Friday. You know, and abuse myself for a few days. You know, like, like I think I can do something to make myself healthy. L- listen, I have to cooperate with health. You cooperate with health. I mean, so you eat vegetables, you exercise, you sleep, you lower your stress. You, you don't make yourself healthy. You cooperate with the things that cause health. Before long, you begin to exude health. You can't fake health. I mean, you can't wake up and put it on. But if you cooperate with the things that don't make you healthy, I mean, you see, you cooperate with potato chips and, um, see what I have yesterday. Uh, (laughs) You know what? You exude unhealth. I know that. Become healthy, which means you cooperate. Be transformed which means you cooperate with what God is doing. And and you do this, the means of it is by the renewal of your mind. He doesn't say by your will. He doesn't say by some experience, although there's places for those things. The key to cooperation is the renewal of your mind. It is not just the true thoughts about God. It is that true thoughts would govern your life. Every one of us can ascend and say, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. I'll write that down. No, but that that truth would govern your life. 
What your mind lingers on has incredible power. Your perspective, how you see the world, sets your priorities and ultimately determines your practice, how you live. You've got to renew your mind. That's what he says in Romans. Hey, don't walk by the, by the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. This world. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the sight of God that he has given you through his Spirit. And the expectation comes in the last half of, of chapter 2 is that, is that we would then, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it's every question, what's God's will? What's God want? Why am I here? Who am I? We all have these questions. And if you want to get down to it, you want to know what's the expectation of, of you not conforming to this world. So resisting that mold and, 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 and being transformed, cooperating with God by the renewing of, of your mind, what's the expectation? You can know the will of God. But as George Mueller says, you can't know the will of God if you have your own will. God's not going to compete with you. So you offer yourself. And, and in some ways what happens is then we, then we begin to walk. We begin to follow. We begin um, letting that renewal happen. That that, that that transformation begins to come to the surface. What's inside, what God has done at the very core begins to come and, and be drawn out of into my life. And I find myself walking in his will. Usually we approach God's will and go, okay, yeah, well, I want to... Um, I need to know what your will is and then I'll tell you if I think it's good and acceptable and perfect or, or if I want to even do it or not but need all that out on the table and God said no you follow me you'll know my will I'm going to lead you straight to the heart of my will and what you're going to discover is what's oh, good oh it's good acceptable you're going to find it's perfect. How do we renew our minds? Let me say four things. And I'd love to just rant on all of these because I don't really get to do that much. You know, like just preacher rant. But here you go. Here's how do you renew your mind? I, you, you know what most of us do not have anymore? Quiet space. I mean, so I, I love technology. I'm not being like an old man going, oh, technology. I love technology. Do you know what it's done though? It has robbed us of all the quiet moments of our life. Used to, some of you, I know, you're, you're of the generation where you used to talk about, hey, when we go, when we stop at the stoplight, and you got a lot, of, you can do that a lot at Ty, in Tyler. You, so as I'm stuck at the stoplight, I'll pray. You know, and you had, you had the little things you prayed through in your car. We don't do that anymore. You know what we have, what we do when we stop at the stoplight? We finished the text we started while we were driving, which shouldn't have done. Or we check our messages, or we look at faith. 
It's robbed all of our quiet time. And I'm just saying, listen, you can't have a renewed mind. You can't expect that the future to come, that the kingdom to come, that the glorification to come would, would, would break into your life now there's never a quiet moment where you never hear from God through his word and respond to God in prayer and just sort of shut, shut the world out for a second that's, that wants to squeeze you and mold you after its fashion. You've got to have some place of quiet. The second thing I would say is God's word. Um, so it's very much a part of the, the time that is quiet, but, but God's Word, and I mean meditating on God's Word, reading God's Word, get it, getting into it. And, and, and listen, I always say this. It doesn't matter if you understand everything or not. It understands you. It's, it's living. It's it, active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. You read it, it reads you back. And not only that, you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in you to help you read it, to open your eyes, to help you see things you never would have ever thought you could have saw. A.W. Tozer says it this way. Oh, he's so good. Read it much. Read it often. Brood over it. Think over it. Meditate over it. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. And when you're awake at night, think of a helpful verse. And when you get up in the morning, no matter how you feel, Think of a verse and make the Word of God the important element in your day. The Holy Spirit wrote the Word. And if you make much of the Word, He'll make much of you. It is through the Word that He reveals Himself. Between those covers is a living book. God wrote it, and it's still vital and effective and alive, and God is in the book. The Holy Spirit's in this book, and if you want to find Him, go to the book. That's how communication happens. You read, you hear from God, you pray, you talk to God. And before long, you realize, you know what? I think I, I know him. And then somebody will go, well, you can't know him, he's invisible. So I, oh, you're right, okay, he's invisible, but I'm telling you, I think I'm, I think I'm starting to hear him. And I get the sneakiest feeling, he's... He can hear me too. We understand the will of God primarily through the Word of God. And then we work that out as we pray to God. Here's the third, uh, third one. One minute. Well, read other writers. Um, this, uh, with the huge qualification. Let, let me tell you how you know what to read, okay? Okay. Um, but I got to read you one of my favorite quotes, John Cotton, 1652. Somebody asked him, why do, you, why do you read at night before you go to bed? Because a lot of people didn't because you had candles and, you know, people cared. You didn't want to read in the bed because you didn't want to burn your house down or whatever. So they said to Cotton, who's a Puritan, he said, well, why do you read, you know, why do you read at night? You know, and, and he said, oh, because I just love to sweeten my mouth with a little Calvin before I go to bed. John Calvin, he meant. So, of course, you know, he's a Puritan. I'm not saying uh, that you'd like that. But anyways, we read one writer. We turn to other writers beside the Bible so that we can savor the taste of God, not only in the Bible, but also the way others savor him. Now, here's how you know what to read. The best writers intensify our taste for the Bible and especially God himself. If all you're reading it nights in you an ambition for yourself, you got to read some other stuff. 
But if what you begin to read ignites your desire for who God is, drives you to His Word, oh, I love, love that view of God, then, then that, you've got to read some of that. Here's the last one. You, you've got to take personal responsibility for your spiritual growth. You can't produce health. I mean, if your spiritual life consists of Sunday morning here, this hour, and that's all it is, you're starving. You're dying of thirst, whether you know it or not. That, that you've got to take a responsibility that you you begin to prioritize things that are spiritual, prayer and time in God's Word and with other believers that would ask you questions beyond, you know, about the stats of the game or, or whatever it is. You know, we're reading this article. Our, our Tuesday morning Bible study. Guys, if you're not in a Bible study, come to Tuesday morning up at the foundry. There's one downstairs, there's one upstairs you pick. Or, or every day of the week, we've got one. But we were talking about it in Bible studies. Article was sent out. I can't remember who sent it out. Maybe Tom Ramey or Evan Prothrower. But the guys had done this study uh, recently in churches, and they were looking at what was sort of the, what made the biggest difference in time in God's Word. And the, what the article revealed is that people that read, you know, read the Bible or, or exposed to the Bible once a week, um, you know, so they were able to chart that. And very little did very little for spiritual growth or, or progress, however they defined it. Then they looked at twice a week. And what they discovered is almost no change there. They looked at three times a week, and it was a, it was a little bit of a bump up. Where the big bump up was, four times a week in God's Word, and the chart went like this. It, it, it's when... It's when you reading and you've been reading and, and then you come here on a Sunday morning and it works like this. I'll say something and you go, huh, that's pretty good. I mean, I had that thought three months ago, but good on you, Ross. Because you've already been listening to him. You've already been talking to him. You're seeing the glimpses in your marriage and your work and your parenting and your friendships of who you are, becoming who you are, your future glory leaking into your daily life. Paul says there's nothing better. There's nothing better. Offer yourself.